Well, the first five books of the Bible are referred to as the Pentateuch, and that refers to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And when you study the Bible, you will find that these five books don't simply appear first in your Bible, but they are foundational for understanding all of Scripture. In the first five books of the Bible, God reveals much about himself, about the world, about humanity, about his design, his purposes, about what it means to be his people, the nature of a covenant relationship. God reveals so much in these first five books of the Bible, and thus they're foundational for understanding all of Scripture. We see the evidence of this in the way that the other authors of Scripture point back to the first five books of the Bible. So you'll see references in the historical books, in the wisdom literature, in the prophetic literature, uh, to the first five books of the Bible. They are continually pointing back to what God has done, to what God has revealed in these first five books of the Bible. We also see this in the ministry of Jesus. When you read through the Gospels, Jesus frequently quoted from the Old Testament, from all the Old Testament, and he quoted frequently from the first five books of the Bible. And so, for example, when he was asked about marriage, he quoted from Genesis to describe God's purpose and intention for marriage. When he was being tempted by Satan, he responded by quoting from Deuteronomy. Uh, when he was engaged in a debate about the resurrection, he quoted from the book of Exodus to settle the debate. And so Jesus loved the Old Testament scriptures, quoted frequently from the Old Testament scriptures, and he quoted regularly and frequently uh, from the first five books of the Bible. And so as followers of Christ, as followers of Jesus, we too want to recognize the value, the significance, the importance, uh, and the meaning, the message of the first five books of the Bible. Last week, we began a three-part sermon series going through the book of Leviticus at a high level. Studying the book at a high level helps us to understand the big picture and the main points even if we don't understand all of the specific laws and instructions. When you read through the book of Leviticus, you can start to get a little bit bogged down by some of the things written in the book. You might be a little bit confused. Why am I reading about this particular thing? Why, why was this a law? What was the purpose? What's the point? And how does it relate to my life today? It can be confusing and difficult to understand some aspects of the book of Leviticus. Some parts will leave us scratching our heads, and that's okay. Even when some parts are puzzling and difficult to understand, we are still able to understand the importance, the significance, the message, the purpose of Leviticus. The Lord is able to use this book in our lives to grow us in the faith, to help us understand and know him, to become more like Christ. He is able to use Leviticus, which is his holy word, to grow us as Christ followers. 
One of the things that I mentioned last week is that understanding how Leviticus fits in the narrative of Scripture helps us understand the importance of Leviticus and the message of Leviticus. As I mentioned, we see in Scripture that the other biblical authors continually and regularly point back to the first five books of the Bible. Well, Leviticus points back to the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning of Genesis, we see how God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And God created man, male and female, in his image with this special purpose within his creation. And Adam and Eve enjoyed fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was God's special dwelling place. It was the realm of life. Adam and Eve enjoyed fullness of joy in God's presence, in God's place, the special place of his dwelling. But of course, when they sinned, when they rebelled against God, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They were sent away from the realm of life. The Lord is holy. He can have nothing to do with sin. And when they sinned, when they sinned death entered the world. And so they had to be removed. They had to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden, the special place of God's dwelling, the realm of life. Yet the Lord in his mercy did not give up on humanity. Instead, he called Abraham to follow him, and he made promises to Abraham that his descendants would be his people, his descendants would be many, They would be God's people, and God would give them a special place to dwell. What we see is that Abraham's descendants grew in number and were called the people of Israel, or the Israelites. In an exodus, they found themselves living as slaves in the land of Egypt under Pharaoh. Yet they cried out to God. God heard their plea. God rescued them. He delivered them. He redeemed them through mighty acts and an outstretched arm. He rescued them and delivered them in a powerful and unmistakable way. And he brought them through the Red Sea into the wilderness, and he established a covenant relationship with them. He said, you will be my people, and I will be your God. And he revealed that it was his plan, his purpose, to dwell in their midst. Yet this was a problem because they too were sinners like Adam and Eve. They were sinful people. And so that created this problem. How could a holy God who is free from sin, who could have nothing to do with sin and death, make his dwelling, his, the special place of his dwelling among his people? Well, the Lord gave them instructions in this regard. He gave them the law, his law, his commandments. He gave them instructions to build a tabernacle in their midst, And the tabernacle would be the special place of his dwelling in a way that was maybe similar to how the Garden of Eden was the special place of his dwelling. And like the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle in the midst of the people of Israel would be the realm of life. And so in Exodus, the people of Israel constructed and assembled this tabernacle. And we saw last week that the book of Exodus ended with the assembly of the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filling 
the tabernacle. But the Lord's presence created a problem for the people of Israel. We saw how the Lord's glory filled the tabernacle. He made his dwelling there. It was a special place of his dwelling. But Moses, the mediator whom God chose for his people, could not enter. Moses and his brother Aaron could not enter the tabernacle because God's presence filled the tabernacle. So the question was then, how could God's people draw near to a holy God? How could God make his dwelling among his people? Leviticus, therefore, provides the answer for this, how this problem would be resolved. As I shared last week, Michael Morales writes, affirming the tabernacle as a cultic restoration of Eden's garden, the theology and narrative drama of Leviticus become apparent. Exodus 40 closes with a wonder. The Garden of Eden planted, as it were, in the midst of Sinai's arid wilderness. Israel's mediator, however, is unable to enter through Eden's gates into the glory of the divine presence, meaning Moses is not able to enter through the tent of meeting. Here Israel is brought face to face with the fundamental question that has perplexed human civilization across the ages and cultures of history. How does one get back inside, back to the golden age, back to paradise with God? The legislation of Leviticus, then, is not merely offering tedious ritual instruction. Rather, it is narrating a theological story. Leviticus begins with Israel standing outside the cherubim-guarded entry of Eden. If Moses the mediator may not enter, then how will it be possible for the tabernacle to become the tent of meeting between God and all Israel? With the opening verse, the God who dwells within begins to speak, revealing the way of entry, the way back to the tree of life. To understand Leviticus, then, is to understand the way of Yahweh, the path of life. So you see, far from being a boring, irrelevant book we can ignore, Leviticus is a book of utmost importance. Another thing I think that we should take note of is that numerous Bible scholars have pointed out that Leviticus, which is the third of the five books in the Pentateuch, falls in the middle for a reason. Leviticus is the theological center of the Pentateuch. Again, numerous scholars have pointed out that the Pentateuch forms a chiastic structure with Genesis, the first book, and Deuteronomy, the fifth book, mirroring each other in certain ways, and Exodus, the second book, and Numbers, the fourth book, mirroring each other in central ways, with Leviticus being in the center. In other words, the structure of the Pentateuch points inward. It points inward toward Leviticus, revealing that Leviticus is the center, the theological center of these first five books, which makes sense because Leviticus answers this question, how can a holy God dwell among his people? How can God's people approach God's glorious presence? If that question is not answered, then what 
else matters. If God's people can't dwell with God, then what else matters? So Leviticus answers this fundamental, essential question of utmost importance. So Leviticus is central to the Pentateuch, and the Pentateuch is foundational for understanding all of Scripture. Last week, we saw that the first seven chapters dealt with the sacrifices the Lord commanded the Israelites to offer. And in chapter 8, he provided the priests. We read about the first worship service in chapter 9. The climax of the first worship service is found in chapter 9, verses 22 through 24, where we read, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. It was an incredible moment for the Israelites. God had provided a way for his presence to dwell among them, for his glory to be revealed to them. He had accepted these offerings that they had presented before him. It was an incredible, extraordinary, wonderful, glorious moment of worship. But this incredible moment was almost immediately followed by a terrible moment. In chapter 10, we read about the sin and judgment of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, And that is where we're going to pick up this morning, as what took place with Nadab and Abihu is a turning point within the narrative of Leviticus. So we are going to take a look at chapters 10 through 16. Chapter 10 recounts the Nadab and Abihu incident and what happened in the immediate aftermath. Chapters 11 through 15 describe the laws of cleanness and uncleanness. And then chapter 16 details the Day of Atonement. So first, we'll read what happened with Nadab and Abihu. I'm going to read chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uzio, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you. When you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. 
you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So immediately following this wonderful, glorious, high water, uh, high water mark in chapter 9, Aaron's sons are struck down after offering unauthorized fire before the Lord. Why was their punishment so severe? Chapter 16 indicates that Nadab and Abihu entered the most holy place within the tabernacle in an unwelcome and unclean way. On the one hand, God's presence was an extraordinary gift for the people of Israel. After all, blessing, life, joy is found in God's presence. On the other hand, the Israelites needed to fear what would happen when something unclean came into contact with the Holy One and the realm of life. Nadab and Abihu were judged for disobeying the commands of the Lord and failing to treat him as holy. Moreover, their dead bodies polluted the tabernacle, the place of God's presence, the realm of life. And so it was with a sense of urgency that the Lord told Aaron that it was his and his son's responsibility to distinguish between holy and the common and between the unclean and clean. In chapters 11 and 15, we read about the cleanness laws, and these laws were a matter of life and death. The whole section, 11 through 15, is bracketed by mentions of Nadab and Abihu. So we read about the incident with Nadab and Abihu at the beginning of chapter 10, and then once we get to chapter 16, which addresses the Day of Atonement, the author reminds us of what took place with Nadab and Abihu. The laws on uncleanness, or the laws on cleanness and uncleanness are divided as follows. Chapter 11 deals with clean and unclean animals. Chapter 12 addresses uncleanness and purification associated with childbirth. Chapters 13 and 14 deal with various skin diseases. And finally, chapter 15, everyone's favorite chapter, addresses bodily discharges. And one of the things that is essential for us to keep in mind, as I have said, is that the presence of Yahweh is the realm of life. And the cleanness laws deal with things associated with death. Sometimes their association with death are not quickly, don't quickly come to our minds. How are these things associated with death? But Bible scholar Jim Hamilton has explained that the rationale behind these regulations is that uncleanness results from death. The results in the presence of death came into the world because of sin. When the people of Israel came into contact with death in some way, shape, or form, they became unclean. The Lord needed to address their uncleanness to make them fit for his presence so that he might dwell among them. His presence cannot dwell with sin death, and that which is associated with death. In chapter 11, the Lord told them what animals were clean, 
which they could eat, and what animals were unclean, which they could not eat. And this is one of those places where it is hard to know why certain animals receive the designation of unclean and not others. Now, many scholars have offered many different ideas. A lot of people have given their theories as to why these animals were clean and why these ones were unclean, but the reality is we just don't know exactly why. And one thing we need to understand is that Moses and the Israelites had a shared understanding of their culture. There are certain things that they could assume that the others understood that maybe we don't understand. We who are thousands of years removed in a completely and vastly different culture don't understand some of the things that they understood, that they took for granted, that they could assume in their communications with one another. I heard one uh, person explain it in this way. They said, imagine that uh, thousands of years from now, uh, baseball has disappeared and someone is trying to understand the rules of baseball in the future by listening to a radio broadcast of a baseball game now. So they listen to the radio bot broadcast. They're trying to figure out baseball. They're trying to understand all the rules. But think about this. When you listen to a radio broadcast of a baseball game now, there are certain things that the broadcasters assume you understand. They're not going to explain every single little detail or rule about the game. They're not going to tell you things, every single rule in detail. They're going to assume you understand things about the game. But someone who is thousands of years in the future trying to listen to this game will go, I don't understand what they're talking about. What does this term mean? Why, why, what, are they, what does it mean when the, pers- the, the person is rounding second base? I don't even know what they're talking about. And so there are certain things that would be difficult for someone in a completely different time, different, different culture to understand things that, again, we would take for granted that we would assume similarly the people of Israel in the, in the days of Moses had things that they understood. There's certain things that they, knowledge that they had in common, that they understood, that they could take for granted. So it's likely the case that when Moses said, these animals are clean and these ones are unclean, we might go, why is that the case? But for them, they'd go, yeah, that makes sense. We get that. That made sense to them. And so we read these designations about the animals that were unclean and clean, and we might have difficulty understanding distinctions. It may be confusing for us, but the end of chapter 11 ensures that we don't miss the point. And so chapter 11, in chapter 11, verses 44 through 47, we read this. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. For this is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten." So again, the rationale may be debated, but the purpose is clear. The purpose was for them to distinguish between ritual cleanness and ritual uncleanness. As one scholar said, making these distinctions in the ritual realm would no doubt serve as a constant reminder to the people of their need for making the parallel distinctions in the moral realm 
as well. Chapters 12 through 15 deal with childbearing, skin diseases, and bodily discharges. And chapter 15, verse 31, summarizes the emphasis of not only chapter 15, but all the laws and regulations on cleanness and uncleanness. And here's what we read. Thus you shall keep, thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Again, Jim Hamilton makes the point that the regulations about flaking uh, skin or bodily discharges or loss of blood are informed by what happens when something that is part of your living body is no longer part of your living body. The skin that is flaking off you is no longer vitally connected to you. It is no longer alive. And so it is bringing you into contact with death and the same with the life fluids that leave the body. When the life fluids leave the body, they are no longer alive in your body and are outside your body, bringing you into contact with death and resulting in your uncleanness. Michael Morales writes, Ritual uncleanness serve not only to bear witness to the widespread pollution of sin, but also by contrast to the infinite holiness of Israel's God. And therefore, the need for cleanse, uh, to the need for cleansing as a prerequisite to entering his presence. Deeper fellowship with God then was the goal of holiness, and the clean, unclean laws were set within the context of pursuing holiness. God, who is holy, cannot tolerate sin, yet... He desires to dwell among his people who are sinful. And so God graciously provided a way for them to do away with their uncleanness to be clean. And this leads us to chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement, which is the culmination of the clean and unclean laws in chapters 11 through 15. Now, remember earlier that I said that Leviticus is the theological center of the Pentateuch. In other words, the Pentateuch points inward toward Leviticus. Well, the same is true for the Day of Atonement. The book of Leviticus is structured in such a way that it points inward toward the Day of Atonement. And so the Day of Atonement is the theological center of Leviticus, which is the theological center of the Pentateuch. And so if you want to know what's the heart, what's the theological center of the whole Pentateuch, look to Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. With that in mind, I think it will be good for us to read all of chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, 
and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times." Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, I sh thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness." The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offerings of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement 
in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. In verse 1, we see that the deaths of Nadab and Abihu provide the occasion for the Day of Atonement. The instructions for the Day of Atonement were likely given on the same day they died. Aaron, who was the high priest, was the only one who was allowed to enter the holy place, the innermost place within the tabernacle. But he could not go into the holy place whenever he wanted. He was not permitted to just go in there at any time for any reason. He was only allowed to go when the Lord instructed him on the particular day set apart by the Lord. He could only enter at the appointed time. But before he could enter, he had to cleanse himself. He had to bathe himself, cleanse himself with water, and then put on holy garments. It was necessary for Aaron to make atonement for himself and for his house and make atonement for the people of Israel as well as for the holy place, which was the tabernacle. In verse 6, he was commanded to make atonement for himself and his house. He needed, he needed to make atonement for himself because he was a sinner. So in order for him to offer sacrifices to the people, he needed to first offer sacrifices for his own sake, for his own household. In order to make atonement, he needed two goats. One goat was going to die, and one was going to be sent into the wilderness. What we see in verses 11 through 13 is that when he was in the most holy place, Aaron had to create a veil of sorts, making a cloud with incense so that he would not die when the glory of the Lord appeared over the mercy seat. And then verses 15 to 20 really are the heart of the chapter. After making atonement for himself and for his family, Aaron killed the goat for the sins and uncleanness of the people of Israel. The first goat had to die with its blood being shed in the holy place. Atonement needed to be made for the holy place and for the sins of the people by the shedding of the blood of a substitute. And we read that atonement was made for all their sins. When he went out from the holy place, he went to the altar in the courtyard where the daily sacrifices were offered and made atonement for it to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people. At that point, he took the live goat and placed both his hands on its head, confessing the sins of the people and putting their sins on its head. Then that goat was banished to the east into the wilderness. That goat had to depart to move away 
from the realm of life into the realm of death. One goat died in their place, and one goat was sent away from God's presence in their place. Both things were necessary for the people of Israel to enjoy God's presence. Aaron was then required to remove the holy garments and bathe himself once again before offering his burnt offering. The Day of Atonement was a statute to be carried out once every year. When we step back and consider what we've read so far in regard to all the sacrifices and shedding of blood, the priests, the cleanness laws, and all the specific details of the Day of Atonement, it can seem like a lot. Some may even have a negative view of Leviticus due to all these things. It might strike us as overly burdensome. Boy, they had to do a lot. They had to kill a lot of animals. They had to shed a lot of blood. What a mess. They had to follow a lot of instructions, a lot of regulations. They had to do all these things so that God could dwell among them. It might seem like a lot. It might seem burdensome. But the reality is that the book of Leviticus displays God's glorious grace. God graciously provided a way for those who were unclean through sin and death to be made clean, to draw near to him so that he could dwell in their midst. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that whatever the Lord required of them was as light as a feather compared to the judgment they deserved. What he required was not burdensome. What he required was a gift. As gracious as the Lord was in providing the way for the Israelites to be made clean and have their sins forgiven, the Lord had greater plans to which the cleanness laws in the Day of Atonement pointed forward. There is much we could say about this. There's much that could be unpacked about the Day of Atonement, about the cleanness laws, but I just want to call our attention to a few things. The author of Hebrews did an excellent job drawing out some of these things, and we'll get to unpack much more of it in detail in the months ahead, and it will be wonderful, and it will be glorious, and it will be encouraging for us, but I want to call our attention just to a few things today. In light of what we've read today, I want us to consider a few things briefly about Jesus. First, Jesus did not need to atone for his own sins. While Aaron and every other high priest were required to make atonement for their own sins, Jesus is the superior high priest because he did not sin. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 27, we read, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus came into the world 
and took on a human nature. He added a human nature to his divine nature. And in his human nature, he did not sin. He resisted temptation every time. He perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the will of God. He lived a life without sin, which was necessary for him to be our high priest. Praise God that he resisted sin for our sake. We rightly call attention to his death, how he died for our sake, but we should also thank and praise God that he resisted sin for our sake. He lived a life without sin. And thus he did not need to make atonement for his own sins. He is the superior high priest. Second, Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice. The Israelites were commanded to carry out the day of atonement year after year after year. They had a continual need for sacrifices. But because Jesus lived a perfect life, he lived a life without sin, he was able to offer the perfect sacrifice. In Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, we read, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And in chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, we read, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus offered a sacrifice of infinite value, the perfect sacrifice on our behalf that covers all our sins. Jesus offered the greatest sacrifice of all. Finally, Jesus is able to make us clean. What we see in Leviticus is that when someone came into contact with death or something that was unclean, they would become unclean and had to go through the process to be made clean. But Jesus is better. During his ministry on earth, Jesus came into contact with people who were unclean. But instead of him becoming unclean, those who were unclean became clean when he touched them. In Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, we read this. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, which would make him unclean. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof 
to them. When Jesus came into contact with the unclean, he did not become unclean, but the man who was unclean became clean. Similarly, Jesus encountered a woman who suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, which would have rendered her unclean for 12 years. She gave all her money to physicians, but they were unable to help her. They were unable to bring healing. They were unable to make her clean. But she had this crazy idea. She had this crazy thought that if she could just go and touch Jesus, somehow, some way, she would be healed and she would be made clean. She said for If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And so she did so. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She took a step of faith and touched Jesus. And in touching Jesus, she was healed. She was made well. She was made clean. And when it was revealed to Jesus, Jesus said to her in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus had the power to do what no priest had the power to do, to touch someone and make them clean. But the good news for us is that he is able to do far more than cleanse someone from that which makes him ritually impure or unclean. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus explained that what comes out of a person from within, from the heart, is what makes him or her unclean. We have sinful hearts. From within our sinful hearts comes sinful thoughts and desires. We all have these sinful thoughts and desires that come from within. Even if we're able to conform our outward behavior to certain moral standards and give the impression that we are good moral people. God sees into our hearts. He sees the sin that's in our hearts. He sees our sinful thoughts. He sees our sinful desires, which make us unclean. And that is a problem for all of us. We have all sinned. We are all unclean. But Jesus has the power to deal with the uncleanness of our hearts. He has the power to cleanse our sinful hearts. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, we read this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He is the one who is able to cleanse our sinful hearts. Brothers and sisters, we cannot make ourselves clean. We cannot make ourselves fit to dwell in God's glorious presence, to enter into the realm of life where there is peace and fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We cannot make ourselves fit to dwell with God, to enjoy his presence. Yet Christ came into the world to save sinners. And in so doing, he makes us clean and he makes us fit to dwell with God, to know his presence and to enjoy him for all of eternity. Friend, if you are not a Christian, then we want you to know there's nothing greater than knowing God and having relationship with God. 
in him there is true and lasting peace. There is fullness of joy. There is pleasure forevermore. Whatever you desire, you cannot find in this world. The deepest longings of your heart and your soul can only be satisfied in God. He is the one who made you. He is the one who knows you better than you know yourself. Yet through your sin, your relationship with him has been severed. And that is not a problem you can fix. You cannot fix your sin problem. It is within yourself. You are sinful in your innermost being. And we all know this. Our consciences all bear witness and testify that we sin and we fall short of God's holy standards. Yet God in his mercy and his kindness has provided a way for us to be made clean so that we can know him and enjoy him. And he has done so through his son, Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save sinners such as us. So if you're not a Christian, I urge you, believe in Christ and be saved. Receive the forgiveness of your sins. Christ died upon the cross to take the punishment for your sin that you deserve. He died in your place as your substitute. And he rose from the grave conquering death. And now everyone who believes in Christ will be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to their heavenly father so that we can enjoy him for all of eternity. If you're not a Christian, believe. Believe in Christ and be saved. For those of us who are Christians, for those of us who have been united to Christ, let us not forget, let us not for, take for granted that we have been cleansed from all uncleanness. Last week, I exhorted us to not take for granted the fact that we can approach God, that we can draw near to Him. Today, I want us to not take for granted that we can draw near, we can approach because he has done what is necessary to make us clean. He is the one who has made us clean so that we can draw near and enjoy him. If nothing else, let us go away from this place with a greater awe of God a deeper gratitude for the work of Christ on our behalf, knowing that though we cannot make ourselves clean, he has cleansed us from all of our sin, from all uncleanness, from an evil conscience, so that we might enjoy him for his glory for all of eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. Your word is glorious. It is wonderful. We can never plumb the depths of your word. But we pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of you as your spirit helps us to read, to study, to meditate, to reflect on, and to apply your word. We thank you that you desire to dwell with us even though we are sinful people. And we thank you that you have provided the way for us to dwell with you, even though we are sinful people. We thank you for Christ, our high priest, who offered the perfect sacrifice so that we could be made clean of all of our sin, of all of our uncleanness. So we pray you'd help us to understand this, help us to believe this. 
Let's not take this for granted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.